Hey gang, if you're enjoying our podcast, Pitchfork Economics, please, pretty please do us two favors. First, share it widely. It makes a huge difference. And also, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. It would be so helpful. So thanks. Budgets are a reflection of our priorities and our values. President Trump unveiled his $4.8 trillion wish list today, which includes cuts to Medicaid and other social safety net programs. We're increasing spending on our nuclear program. We're going to have a very good budget with a very powerful military budget. When budgets are being made, that's where the power is, and that's where the important decisions are made and who gets what and why. That's right. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jasmine Weaver. I'm the executive vice president here at Civic Ventures, and I do a lot of our policy work, including our work on minimum wage. So today, we're going to talk to uh, the amazing Bob Greenstein, who is the founder and president of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And he is for sure, at least on the left, the authority on budgeting and how it works and what we should do and so on and so forth. And He's super well-respected. He's won a ton of awards. Yeah. Jasmine, you did some budgeting in your early career, didn't you? I did. You wanted to be a budget wonk. What, what, what was it and why? So early on in my career, I worked in the state legislature right out of college. And I very quickly learned that budgets, when budgets are being made, that's where the power is. That's right. And that's where the important decisions are made and who gets what and why in state government. And so I went to grad school. And then after grad school, I worked at Harvard in their office in planning and budgeting. And then after that, continued to work in the state at the state level, at the federal level, in uh, city government, and always tried to keep my hand on the budget because I knew that that's how you build power. That's right. And get things done. Right? Get things because done. That- you know, yeah. help people. It is the clearest and quickest way, even though I love policy, you know, so much policy is done through the budget. And yeah. so it's a very important access point to actually where the final decisions are made. Right. And I suppose having never done budgeting, government budgeting before, because the process is so arcane, complex, and what's the opposite of transparent? <laughs> Opaque. <laughs> If you're a ninja at it, you can get, you can either get remarkable things done or you can stop things from getting done. Yes. Well, early on in my career, what I saw is that there's all these people that are super smart policy people and they build these beautiful and perfect policies and they know the ins and outs of those policies. But then where they fall down is actually getting those policies funded and getting them through the budget process. And so by wanting to understand how do you actually make things happen. I actually, I mean, part of it, in all honesty, I was a college affordability you know, activist. That's right. In That's how you got your start in politics, yes. wasn't it? Yes. It was, You're a rabble rouser I was at the a university. Huge, <laughs> I was a huge rabble rouser. And to understand tuition policy and to understand how I wanted the state to take action, I had to understand both the university's budget and the state budget. The state budget, yeah. You know, the thing is that, and you know, Bob has been making this argument for a long time that budgets are a reflection of our priorities and our values. And for sure, 
I think that is the case, right? Budgets are the instantiation of our wishes and dreams or nightmares or whatever it is. Uh, but I think that there's another way of thinking about it, which I think in terms of the public narrative is even more consequential, uh, which is that there also is a theory of growth. In particular, I, in my personal view is that one of the reasons that Republicans have been more successful in driving their budget priorities over the last 30 or 40 years than Democrats are is because, you know, they characterize it as a theory of growth. That mm -hmm. if, if you enact our budget priorities, you know, if you cut taxes for rich people and cut programs for poor and middle class people, then the economy will grow. Yes. Right? That, and we'll all be better off when the economy That's growing. right. And, that, and, you know, one of the characterizations of the sort of Republican or conservative budgeting is austerity right? That will just cut, 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 cut. But austerity is really just trickle-down economics, but for budgets, right? It's just the same kind of thing. And, um, you know, I think what's really important is for progressives to recognize that, that a different kind of budget, in fact, won't increase the deficit, will actually increase growth, almost certainly. And if it does increase the deficit, better to increase the deficit to pay for uh, infrastructure, than to give tax cuts, more tax cuts to rich people, which is what the current budget priorities reflect. Absolutely. And I think you're seeing that more and more, but we certainly progressives can do a better job of explaining why the type of spending that they want to do not only is better for people, both at the micro and the macro level, yeah. but it also helps our communities be prosperous. And it's yeah. where growth and abundance will come from. Right. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to talk to Bob about how budgets are created and uh, nobody knows more about it. And from there, we can continue to explore how budgeting affects growth and all the other progressive priorities. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Hi, my name is Bob Greenstein. Uh, I direct a policy institute in Washington, D.C. called the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. We work on budget and tax issues, social programs, aim to try to improve policies to reduce poverty and uh, reduce inequality and make prosperity more broadly shared. And we also work at the both the federal and state levels uh, through a, a network of independent but affiliated state policy organizations that share the same broad goals. Bob, we thought it'd be a great place to start if you could just help us understand how the federal budget is made and kind of just generally a little bit about the federal budget, you know, kind of a federal budget 101. Well, what a lot of people know about the federal budget is normally the first Monday in February, I think this year it was the second Monday in February, the president releases a budget. It usually gets a lot of news coverage. But the budget process involves far more than the president's release of the budget in February. Uh, the budget process for any given fiscal year, our fiscal years at the federal level run October 1 through September 30th. So let's take fiscal year 2021, which will start this coming October 1st. The budget process for that fiscal year actually began last spring, in the spring of 2019, when individual federal agencies will scrub all the numbers, they put all this material together, 
on how much it would cost to continue doing just what they're doing now, uh, additional needs, opportunities for savings, whatever. They're often given targets to hit. And the agencies produce all this detailed information that then goes up through the cabinet secretaries. And by the summer at some point, late summer perhaps, it is submitted to the Office of Management and Budget, which is right there next to the White House and is Office of Management and Budget is part of the executive office of the President of the United States. Uh, OMB, as we call the Office of Management and Budget, then takes all of the submissions from the agencies, but it then adds in what it is the president wants to do on the budget. He may want new initiatives. He may want to eliminate various things. And uh, that all gets worked through, and the budget then goes public in February. The congressional part of the budget process works a bit differently now than it did maybe 20 years ago. It used to be that the House and the Senate would each pass what is called a budget resolution. It's called a budget resolution because it isn't a law. It really lays out targets for various parts of the budget, and the House and the Senate would then work out their disagreements and come up with a single unified budget resolution. And if it passed both the House and the Senate, it then had some role in putting limits on or guiding what Congress did going forward. These days, if the House and the Senate are in different, under the control of different parties, it's virtually impossible to produce a budget plan that both chambers will agree on. So in most years, Congress really doesn't pass a budget. And even if it does agree on a budget, it's not a law, and the president doesn't have to follow what the Congress agrees to. So the single biggest impact of the congressional work on the budget in most years is simply to set a ceiling for the total amount that Congress can appropriate for programs that are funded through the annual appropriations process. They're not entitlements like Social Security or Medicare. They're funded each year to put a ceiling on the total amount that can be appropriated for non-defense programs and then separately for defense. But there's one other way in which the budget can be critical, and it could be really important a year from now, and that's the following. The whole budget process changes if the president and his or her party control the White House, the House, and the Senate at the same time. If they control all three of those at the same time, then they can pass with only 51 votes needed in the Senate, not 60, a bare majority. They can pass a budget plan that sets up what is called a budget reconciliation process. That means that a big budget bill that could make major changes in entitlements and taxes can be passed by only requiring 51 votes in the Senate rather than the 60 we need for most legislation. And so the biggest changes in budgeting in recent U.S. history occur in years when the president and his party control all three of those places. It was how Ronald Reagan passed his big tax cuts for the top, 
budget cuts for the bottom in 1981. It was how Bill Clinton passed his first budget, which raised taxes back up at the top and expanded things like the earned income credit and food stamps. It's how George W. Bush got his big tax cuts in both 2001 and 2003, and it's how Barack Obama passed the Affordable Care Act. All of those things happen using this budget reconciliation process in a period uh, in most of these years when the same party controlled everything. And everybody who works on the budget here in Washington thinks that if, after this November's election, either the Republicans or the Democrats, if one party controls all three of those places, then next spring we are almost certainly going to have an effort for a big reconciliation bill. You could try to do climate or more on health care or overhauling the tax code. The reconciliation part of the budget is your opportunity to make the biggest changes, but you can only avail yourself of it if your party controls House, Senate, and White House at the same time. Wow. It's uh, it's such a a Byzantine world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, when you work in it for years, you sort of get used to it. Yeah, but, but it really is a bit Byzantine, and it used to be. There were years in the old days when budget reconciliation bills could pass, normally not so sweeping bills, when different parties controlled different parts of the government. But that was when we were much less polarized than we are today. The budget process has almost ground to a halt. So, Bob, can you speak to where does the money come from to pay for the budget? Like, what are the sources of federal income that offset the spending? The two main sources are the income tax and the payroll tax. As you know, Nick, yeah. the majority of Americans pay a lot more in payroll tax than they do in income tax. Yeah. Uh, th those are the two two biggest, and there are a bunch of, you know, there's excise taxes, there's uh, like the gasoline tax that doesn't bring in a whole lot, or the estate tax, which has been shrunk so much it doesn't bring in very much. There's the corporate income tax that was shrunk even more in the 2017 tax bill. That no longer brings in so much. And then, of course, since taxes are now falling about a trillion dollars a year short of expenditures, uh, the rest of it just comes from borrowing. Why don't we talk a little bit about your perspective on the Trump budget? And, um, and what you want listeners to know about the Trump budget. Well, the, the Trump budget is, uh, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable statement of values and priorities. It uh, would push tens of millions of people who were down on their luck into or deeper into poverty and cause a lot of hardship uh, through massive cuts in education, health care, environmental enforcement, you name it. And at the same time, it doubles down on tax cuts for people at the top by proposing to make the uh, highly skewed 2017 individual tax cuts permanent. Uh, it has a trillion dollars over 10 years in cuts to Medicaid and the, the support provided under the Affordable Care Act to help moderate-income people buy coverage. It cuts $180 billion over 10 years out of food assistance for hard-pressed families 
by slashing what we call the SNAP program. It used to be known as food stamps. It even has significant cuts for people with disabilities. Uh, I, I mean, the one that really blew my mind was they actually even cut the National Institutes of Health. They have something like a 28% cut just in the first year in the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, you, you sort of name it, if it's outside of the defense budget, it's uh, it's likely to be cut. Legal services for the poor, which we've had under both parties since the 1960s, that would be eliminated. Low-income energy assistance eliminated, and uh, uh, on and on. Now, those things aren't going to pass. They're certainly not going to get through the Democratic House of Representatives, uh, but they're you know they're in the budget. Uh, the single thing that stuns me the most in the budget is if we take the part of the budget. Uh, yeah, the wonky term for the part of the budget I'm about to mention is non-defense discretionary programs. So trying to translate that into plain English, it simply means everything in the budget outside of defense that is not an entitlement program. You know. Entitlement programs are things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and the like. Uh, so most of the things we often look to government for, many of them at least, education, environmental protection, national parks, scientific research, clean food and water, medical research, all those things are they're not defense, they're not entitlements. They're all part of the non-defense discretionary part of the budget. So why am I raising this? Because under the New Trump budget, it's a 10-year budget, and by the 10th year, it would reduce total expenditures for all of these non-defense programs that aren't entitlement combined, all the education, environment, national, all that stuff combined. It would reduce expenditures for them to the lowest level as a share of the economy since Calvin Coolidge was president in the mid-1920s. I mean, this isn't serious. This is ridiculous. But that's what's in the budget. That's that's amazing. Now, so it sounds like the budget, as you're you know, describing it, is bad for people. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for a whole host of things. What would it do to the economy if it's shrinking federal spending in that way? What kind of impacts would we expect to see on the economy? Well, it, uh, first, just from a macro perspective, uh, to, to be to be fair to the Trump people, they didn't when they were putting the budget together. They obviously had no way of knowing about the coronavirus and the like. But here we are with uh, growing risks of a global economic slowdown, uh, and there's really going to be a need to keep purchasing power up. And were this budget to be enacted, which it won't, uh, were it to be enacted, it would reduce consumer purchasing power as well as public sector purchases at precisely the wrong time, precisely the time when you want to make those purchases stronger to kind of counteract the negative economic effects to the degree you can from a slowing of economic activity that's likely going to come as the coronavirus unfortunately uh, spreads. And then beyond that, the budget would significantly widen inequality and increase poverty. And since people at the top of the income scale spend a much smaller percentage of their annual income when it's so high than people in the middle and bottom parts of the income scale, many of whom live paycheck to paycheck, so they spend everything they have. If you shift the resources up the income scale, all else being equal, that's likely to give you a slower rate of economic growth because you have 
less aggregate demand, less actual purchases uh, going on in the economy, and uh, uh, you know more more money uh, uh, saved, but not necessarily invested. When you just put things on autopilot and keep funding things at last year's level, you have a less effective government. And, uh, you know, yeah, they'll probably come up with something halfway through the year or so, but it's it's not it's not really the best way to, uh, you know, run the government of the United States. So, Bob, if you could wave a magic wand and make some changes to the budget to create a budget that, you know, promotes prosperity and growth and supports people, what would you do? So let me distinguish between a budget process and what you might call budget content, the actual proposals. There certainly are some changes that might be modestly beneficial that you could make in the budget process. But the problem isn't the process. The problem is the polarization and, in my view, the misplaced values of a lot of our top officials who are involved in putting budgets together. Now, I would love to see, if the opportunity arises in 2021, uh, a budget reconciliation bill that prioritizes major action on climate, on covering the uninsured, uh, and the like, uh, and that pays for it by essentially undoing the 2017 tax cut and putting in a real tax reform uh, that closes all kinds of wasteful and unproductive loopholes, raises taxes on the people who can most afford it, uh, dramatically reforms capital gains taxes and taxes on high income and wealth. I mean, you could, if you had the stars aligned right, you could, in in theory, put a bill together uh, or go a couple years in a row and put a couple of budget reconciliation bills together uh, that make major changes there. I think we're, we're not only under-investing in infrastructure and things like that, we're heavily under-investing in things like low-income housing, child care, you know, only about one out of every four low-income households that qualifies for housing assistance gets it because of limited funding. We have a growing housing affordability crisis. Many people can't afford child care. College isn't sufficiently affordable. We still have 30 million uninsured. These are all issues that can be dealt with, uh, with sound budgeting priorities and with uh, raising uh, substantially more revenue, and we surely can raise more revenue in ways that are economically efficient. The the problem is creating the, the political will to do it and having uh, people in office who will pursue those values. So I get a little uncomfortable when people act like, oh, if we just change the procedure this way or that way. The problem isn't the procedures. The problem really has been the uh, the values of the policymakers, the polarization, and the like. Uh, so I think we're almost out of time, and we always like to end with uh, a fun question, which is, why do you do this work? You, you know, the budget is where these key decisions are made. If you really want to make ours a more just and equitable society, and you feel, as I think one almost has to if that's your goal, that government has to play a substantial role in that, then you got to be involved in budgeting and taxes. That's where the resources are raised and allocated and spent, and the priorities are set as to where the resources go and for what. 
So to me, it's it's a fundamental part of trying to make this country live up to the noble ideals it's had, but has never really come close to meeting. That was fantastic. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time. It's such a fascinating conversation. Of course, we could go on for days on this subject, but... Uh, oh, thank, thanks for doing it. Um, I hate to be abrupt, but I have a meeting in 20 minutes with Cory Booker, so I have to get up to his office. Okay. Well, <laughs> and we'll be talking about some good budgeting. Things. Okay. Say hi to Cory from us. Thank you. Will do. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Yikes! That was a that was an amazing conversation with Bob, and and I have. Uh, spent time with Bob before, and when you hear him begin to explain how all this f- stuff fits together, you're both in awe of his sort of knowledge of it, but also kind of terrified by, you know, just the the whole process of it. And yes, how it's a very complex process, and there's probably a few people that know more about it than Bob. Yeah, but it also makes it, it makes it very clear why it's so hard to follow and why people just tear out their hair and why it's so fraught and easy to manipulate and why the whole thing it just is a little dispiriting when you hear sort of the gory details about how it is all supposed to come together yeah but it was helpful i mean he did lay a lot of really important groundwork i think you know one of the things that you said at the beginning and it's certainly true and bob emphasized it was just how you know, little we spend on all of these things that people think the federal government is spending a ton on. Right. And how much we spend on other areas. And so people understanding those basics around, I think it's 2% of the federal budget goes to education. Yeah. You know, very little goes to foreign aid. Uh, very little goes to infrastructure. One of these things that we keep talking about, how yeah. important it is to spend on it. I think it's only 2 or 3% goes to infrastructure. So better understanding those big picture things you know, is is super important for people then understand our government yeah. and what our government is valuing. Yeah. And there is a sort of a movement towards understanding the budget as a theory of growth, too. And our friend um, Michael Linden has recently written a piece which sort of suggests that, hasn't he? Absolutely. It was a great piece. It was in CNN Money, I think it was. And it was an op-ed, and I encourage people to, I think we'll have a link at the bottom of the show, and you should definitely click on that link and read it, because it's a great piece, and it talks not just about how our budgets are a reflection of our values, but also how they are reflections of how you can grow the economy, and how the Trump budget is, is going to be harmful to the economy, yeah. but there are ways that you can have a budget that promotes prosperity, that promotes abundance, and uh, supports people at the same time. Yeah, and you know, I think we, we learned from Bob that the, you know, the current Trump budget, which, to be clear, will never pass and is, you know, it's just really is a is a political positioning document. Uh, but it does reflect a theory of the case, which is the only thing that matters in a human society and in a market economy is making rich people richer. And if you do that, somehow it will all work out if they even believe that. I mean, they may not even care about anything other than just making rich people richer. Uh, but it is sort of the canonical trickle-down case that markets solve everything, and if rich people, you know, rich people are job creators, and if they have a ton of money, it will all trickle down yep. to everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but what we know, 
is that, you know, none of that is true, that in fact, prosperity emerges from the middle and it's investments in middle class people and working people that actually drive the economy. And if people aren't healthy, you're not going to have a thriving economy. And if people aren't educated, you're not going to have a thriving economy. And if the roads and bridges and airports don't work, you're not going to have a thriving economy. And, and so, if working people don't have money in their pocket, you're not right. going to have a thriving, <laughs> thriving economy. economy. Right. And so what really drives a market economy are essentially the opposite things that, you know, the opposite of what they're trying to uh, fund yes. Yes. in the Trump budget. And this is, you know, this is the great battle. And the problem that the country faces is that the right has been so effective over a generation in demonizing government and demonizing the public sector and in calling into question the wisdom of any spending collectively on these things, that a huge proportion of people actually buy these arguments that if you just get government out of the way, somehow it will all work out, despite all evidence to the contrary. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. Yes. And there are no existence proofs of that theory of the case on planet Earth today or in the past that all of the most prosperous places in the world make huge public investments in these things that actually lead to economic growth and the welfare of all. And it's just, it is shocking. But, you know, that's the power of neoliberalism. That power of these narratives is that people have sort of been indoctrinated into believing that if we raise taxes and spend money collectively through government, that it will be wasted and so on and so forth. So one of the things we talk about on this show is how you tell stories and how important it is that you tell stories in the right way. And what we have seen is that progressives oftentimes focus on fairness when they talk about budgets and how budgets are unfair and how they are going to harm particular things or people. And those are all really important things and they're true. But one of the things that progressives, I think, have fallen down on is being able to tell a story about why their budgets are not only better for people, better for the environment, and a number of other things, but they also help support growth and prosperity. It's one yeah. of the things that Michael does a good job of, and he actually connects the dots also in his piece around contracting of government spending and how that will impact the economy. But for the most part, we don't do a good job of that. Why that, do you think that is? And Yeah, I think, I think that in the same way that for a generation when we litigated the minimum wage and we said, well, a low minimum wage is unfair, and they said a low minimum wage increases growth, uh, we lost 60-40 because most people care about growth and not that many people care about fairness. Litigating the budget in that fairness versus growth frame traps us in the same uh, losing cycle. Uh, it's not just that those fairness arguments, those compassion arguments, won't generate a supermajority of people to support it. It's also, and, and perhaps even worse, that we are ratifying their theory of growth. <laughs> when they say growth and we say fairness, what we're basically saying to voters is they are right about growth. <laughs> that, that in fact, the Trump budget will lead to growth. It's the bad medicine, right? It's <laughs> like, take your medicine. It's, you know, this is fair, right. it's right, and we should do it kind of because yeah. it's, we know it's the best thing to do, but this other side is saying, look, we're gonna make your life, you know, it's gonna be growth, it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna, be, yeah, I'm, we're gonna make you more prosperous. Yeah. And, and this is the grave danger of litigating the budget in terms of values. 
is that that's not what they're doing. And if and if we don't win on growth, we cannot win this narrative fight. And so it's so consequential, I think, to understand the budget as a theory of growth, to explain it to people in that way, and to be confident that all of the people who care also about fairness will be happy with a budget that is fairer. Well, in, and, and the great thing is we don't have <laughs> to know, give up on fairness. No. It can be fairness and, and growth, growth. Right. And that's the winning argument. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just think that this is so consequential. And we're in this trap and have been in this trap for a generation. And it's just hard to train people to not litigate it in that way. They're just so accustomed to it. And, you know, to be clear, these are the arguments that move a lot of people, that, that, that it's certainly true that it's grossly unfair and unjust, and we should push back for those reasons. But I can tell you for certain that in the world, you cannot win that way. You can't generate a super majoritarian amount of support around those fairness arguments. You have to include growth. You have to win on that, too. And it's true. And it's true. Yeah. And that's the other great thing is there's this happy circumstance, which is that we're also correct that, in fact, the, the economy will grow faster and people will do better under these more progressive budgets. In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk to the amazing Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman and about his book, arguing with zombies should be a fantastic conversation yeah, and i i presume that zombie he's talking about is the neoliberal zombie it should be fantastic pitchfork economics is produced by civic ventures if you like the show make sure to subscribe rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts find us on twitter and facebook at civic action and nick hanauer Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.